Great day, everyone, and welcome to Thank God for Monday. I'm Brother Greg Cellini, the Franciscan Brothers of Brooklyn and Seton Hall University, class of 1985. My great pleasure to be back with you today. The purpose of our show, Thank God for Monday, is to inspire you, our audience, to take personal responsibility for your professional satisfaction. We want to provide you hope, healing, peace in these unprecedented, turbulent, uncertain times. Motivate you to search deep inside yourself in the quest for fulfillment. Listeners, it's really up to you as to how to utilize the information we provide today, take full accountability for decisions you make, and the resulting outcomes. Now, one of the goals of our show, thank God, for Monday is to introduce role models. Role models of people who take very bold steps in their work lives. As this week is the observance of the 20th anniversary of the horrific attacks of September 11, 2001, we are honored today to have with us a most unique and special guest. His name is Lieutenant Colonel Retired Brian C. Price, Ph.D. Brian is the founding executive director of the Buccino Leadership Institute right here at Seton Hall University. He also served in the U.S. Army for 20 years, which included tours in Iraq and Afghanistan. Hello and welcome to Thank God for Monday, Brian. Greg, thanks for having me on. I'm really excited to talk to you today. We are honored to have someone of your ilk on Thank God for Monday on this very, very special day. We've only got 30 minutes, so if you don't mind, we're going to jump right into the deep end of the pool. Let's do it. We understand, Brian, that you grew up in beautiful Seagirt, New Jersey, and actually attended high school here in New Jersey and Manasquan High School. Did you have a sense in high school that you wanted to serve our great country? I did. Um, my older brother actually went into the Navy, their prep school. So uh, everyone's familiar with the Naval Academy or our tribal with Army. And my older brother went to the prep school for a year. And that was where I kind of got my first taste of what the military academy life was like. But to me, um, you know, giving back has always been um, a, a large part of my family. I come from a family of teachers and coaches and folks that give back to the community. And so this was kind of a natural extension of that. And I think maybe more uh, selfishly, um, you know, if you're familiar with West Point, you don't uh, I don't want to say it's free when you go there because you have to owe five years of your life afterwards. But I really didn't know what I wanted to do with my life after college. And this was both a great opportunity to give back, to uh, give a gift to my parents in terms of no no tuition and it was an also an opportunity to play Division One college baseball. So it was like a good trifecta. Oh, what an incredible story, certainly. So after Manasquan High School, you go to West Point. Share with us, please, a little bit about your time at West Point. Sure. Um, West Point is a really unique uh, place. If you haven't been, you know, for the folks that are listening from New Jersey, it's, it's relatively close. We're probably uh, about an hour uh, from from Seton Hall's campus. Uh, I think the biggest difference for me was a culture shock in terms of going from a normal family life into a military lifestyle. And they call it a 47-month leadership experience. And they start out uh, very similar how we start out at the Pacino Leadership Institute, 
which is on like leading yourself and kind of starting with followership and becoming a, uh, you know, a, a good servant leader from a followership position. And then over time, you keep getting uh, more and more duties and responsibilities so that by the time you graduate as a, we call them firsties or seniors, uh, you're ready to go out into the army and command a platoon of America's sons or daughters uh, right upon graduation. And so um, I can't sp- say enough great things about their leadership model and uh, and what a transformative place it really is. Boy, it sounds like an incredible place of transformation to spend 47 months in an environment like that. Now, you mentioned before, Brian, sports, uh, baseball in particular. Were sports an important part of your training at West Point? It is. Um, General Douglas MacArthur uh, once said that uh, every cadet is an athlete. And so whether you grew up playing sports at the varsity level in high school or not, every cadet has to take a very rigorous physical fitness exercise routine. So you, every cadet has to take boxing, uh, combative, uh, combative exercises, gymnastics, swimming, or as it was referred to by many of my friends as plebe drowning. Uh, <laughs> and, and so you have to, you have to participate also if you don't play a division one sports. So I played baseball at West Point. Uh, you have to participate in intramural athletics. And what that's supposed to is to teach is, you know, competition, uh, sacrifice, again, serving others and being part of a, a team, which are all great skills for when you go out into the Army and you're, and, you're, and you're leading in that capacity. Was baseball new to you at West Point, or had you played at Manasquan High School? No, I had the good fortune of playing all four years at Manasquan, um, was all shore down in our area, and uh, fortunate enough to be all state as well. So it was uh, – Baseball was, uh, I played football, baseball, and basketball, but baseball was definitely my love. Wow. Did you ever have the dream of one day making the major leagues, or was that you felt not the direction that uh, you were being called, possibly? <laughs> uh, Greg, if you could see me, I am on the short of stature side. So um, for me, yes, was it a dream? A hundred percent. But I did not go to West Point with that dream of, of playing professionally. What's interesting is I played second base. My partner in crime was a, my, my, uh, co-captain played shortstop and he was actually drafted by the White Sox, but chose not to go play professionally. He chose to serve his commitment, uh, right after graduation. So, um, if that gives you a little sense of, uh, of what type of student athletes are attending the academies. You must have had some darn good teams there at West Point. Um, I'm biased, uh, but we were Army's uh, first ever Patriot League champion, so we're really proud of that uh, of that mark. Oh, congratulations! That's incredible. So you spend this 47 great months at West Point, and then you graduate. Uh, what was your initial assignment after graduating West Point? So, depending upon uh, what branch of service, so when I say branch, the Army. Everybody goes into the Army, although we had a handful that went Air Force or, or Navy, but most people go into the Army. There, at the time, were 16 different branches. So everything from what most people would think about the Army in terms of infantry, armor, field artillery, but then they also had things like finance and logistics and medical service corps. So I ended up uh, 
being commissioned as an aviation officer. So my first duty out of West Point was to attend flight school at Fort Rucker, Louisiana for uh, about 18 months and learn how to fly helicopters. And so I chose to fly the Army's attack helicopter, which is called the Apache, uh, the Apache Longbow. And now is a critical question, Brian, if you don't mind, I need to ask you, where were you on the morning of September 11, 2001? So I was a lieutenant platoon leader um, based out of Fort Hood in Texas. So one of the largest military installations that we have. And it's interesting because uh, that Tuesday morning, uh, the night before they had the screening of Band of Brothers came out on HBO. And the first ever episode came out that night. And I remember waking up and going to physical training the next morning and talking to my platoon about what a fantastic, you know, episode that was. And it's all about leadership and uh, and brotherhood. And then I went home to shower and my my mom called me. Uh, my mom was in New Jersey at the time. And what was interesting about that day was. She was supposed to go into the hospital in my area, in the Jersey Shore area, for her first bout of chemotherapy. Oh. And so the hospital actually contacted her and told her not to come in after they saw the news of what has was happening because they were fearful of the triage overwhelming New York City's hospitals and patients coming south. So I was actually on the phone with her. So I did not see the first plane hit. I don't imagine many people did, but she called me on the phone and we were, I was talking to her as I saw the, the second plane hit. Oh, immediately right after that, I got a phone call from my commander and asked to come immediately back into what, uh, to Fort Hood. And at that time, Fort Hood was an, an open post, meaning you could just drive on and off at your leisure which is very foreign to us today with military installations. Sure. And in a matter of, you know, uh, minutes or hours, it became a closed post. So uh, we had soldiers searching every single piece of, you know, vehicles coming in, um, not so much coming out. But what this led to was I performed 12-hour shifts where I was guarding our airfield. And on top of that, it took about, I lived two two miles from post, but because of the security uh, constraints, it took me three, three and a half hours to get onto base. So those were some really long days and nights. Um, And then obviously going home and trying to figure out, uh, you know, I had friends and family that were back here in the east and and folks in our area would commute to New York City. So just like we all were in the New Jersey, you know, metropolitan area, uh, really feeling for for others. 9-11-2001, 9-11-2001 has impacted all of us, many of us in somewhat different ways. Can you describe the effect these events might have had on you personally, Brian? Yeah, I think for me, um, you know, I had chosen to serve in the Army prior to this stuff going on. Um, but I think it was a sense of, I was at the right place at the right time in terms of to give back and to and to help do something about it. And so I felt like, you know, my time at West Point and my my uh, three years prior to that, I graduated in 98. So I'd been in the Army for three years. I kind of prepared me for 
uh, for serving. And I felt like it was, we felt useful, right? And I remember, um, everybody wanted their opportunity to, to, to go over to Afghanistan and, and to, and to help out. But what a crazy time that was. And it's interesting now because we teach student at, you know, students in our leadership institute at Seton Hall who weren't even born. You know, our, our freshmen coming in, uh, you know, you, you're an 85 guy. So I think like World War II for us was a history book or something in the history books. Sure. As 9-11 for our current students is the same, is the same thing. Uh, but one interesting thing is what we try to do, uh, and I don't know if this was, if I even shared this with you prior to the, to the call. Every year, our, we, I take all of our freshmen across the river to the National 9-11 Museum and Memorial. Oh, wow. And every one of our students has an opportunity to, you, you know, go over there and it's a pretty special day. We start off by, uh, if you've been to the memorial, the two, um, you know, uh, memorial pools that surround. Okay. And what we do is I have the students find all 14 of the Seton Hall affiliated victims on that day so that we've created a map of where those individuals are so that the students can kind of, uh, tap into that. And one of those students was, uh, I believe 22 years old or 23 years old. So just, you know, just a couple years just removed from, from Seton Hall. And then we have a special uh, tour that the great folks at the 9-11 Museum Memorial do for us. It's based on leadership. So it's all of the heroic leadership stories from that day, from the firefighters to police to the EMTs, but also, I think, everyday people that were helping other people get through that horrific moment, whether that was leading individuals to safety, rendering aid to people that needed it, um, and to me, it's, it's, it's a fantastic, um, opportunity for, uh, for self-reflection and for students to understand that life is precious and that, uh, leadership will find you in moments that you kind of least expect it. One other thing I'll, I'll just share with you very briefly. The first year that we went, we were wearing our, you know, suits and ties and formal business wear. Yeah. We all had our Seton Hall pins on our lapels. Uh. One of the docents who does the tours for people comes over and is looking at our pins and is like, where are you guys? You guys are from Seton Hall? And his name is Bill Spade, and he was from Rescue Fives, actually, and he's the only living survivor to survive from his unit on 9-11. Oh, my goodness. And so what we've done in the past two years is he actually speaks to all of our students about his experiences and he's a Seton Hall grad himself. So it's even extra special, but uh, yeah, it's uh, so we're trying to keep that, you know, that feeling alive um, for, for students. And it's a fantastic place for an interdisciplinary experience. Cause it doesn't matter if you're a history kid, you know, a nurse, a scientist, you're going to get something out of that, that experience. And we, we make it all about leadership. Absolutely incredible. Now, if I perceive correctly, you were in Fort Hood, Texas, when this was going on. Did this impact you subsequent assignments in 9-11, 2001? So, yes. Um, what's interesting is we were not slated to go to Afghanistan um, prior to the Iraq War kicking off just a couple years later in 2003. 
And so um, my unit was was tasked with going to Iraq first as opposed to Afghanistan. The ironic thing was, is in the army, you're supposed to move around every couple of years. And uh, I was being promoted and I was being asked to go to another location in Virginia. I deferred my school in order to stay with my unit in the hopes that we would go to Iraq on time. But that unit was the 4th Infantry Division, which was supposed to go through Turkey. And at the time, Turkey was saying, we're not allowing any troops going, U.S. troops through there. So I slept on an air mattress for about four months because the Army had already taken my household goods and moved them to Virginia. But it's, but it's funny looking back on it now because I remember thinking, all I wanted to do was deploy. And yet I wasn't, you know, I missed when my unit went over there thinking, I'm never going to get a chance to go to Iraq or Afghanistan. Obviously, you know, those opportunities came later for me. But I remember at that time thinking, like, you just wanted to do something, you know. And uh, and so I, I feared that I was not going to have that opportunity. You ended up going at some point to Afghanistan. Isn't that right, Brian? I did. I deployed there in 2005 to 2006 um, for a year. Really unique situation in the sense that, when I was a company commander at the time, or what we called troop commanders because I was in the, in the air cav, but most company commands last about 12 months or at their, at their latest two years. Because of this weird circumstance, we trained up at Fort Hood. Our unit was actually based out of Germany. So we moved all of our families then to Germany. And then we deployed to Afghanistan for 12 months. So I was the commander of the same unit with the same first sergeant for 33 months, which is very wow. strange on three different continents and during a really interesting time in Afghanistan. So, so yeah, looking back at the news, you know, the past couple of weeks, um, it's been hard to watch in terms of, you know, what's gone on over there. And, uh, my heart kind of breaks for, you know, the, the people of Afghanistan that, that wanted a, uh, a future that was, uh, maybe one that's going to be very different from the one that the Taliban is going to offer them. So it was, it's been tough to watch. Now, at some point after company command, if I perceive correctly, you attend a very prestigious university, a Stanford university to study for your PhD. Uh, what was this like living in California and, uh, what was the subject of your doctoral dissertation? So this was really fascinating. I literally left Afghanistan and a short time later, I find myself um, in Stanford, California and Palo Alto. Um, So I had been responsible for, again, 33 months, 107 people. I was proud to say that all of those people came back safe and sound from Afghanistan. And then I go to a place where I was just responsible for myself and my wife at the time. And um, the challenge there, though, was the Army wanted me to complete my Ph.D. in three years. And normally, oh my goodness. Nor- normally uh, in the political science field, uh, it takes about six or seven years to kind of get through that. So uh, the joke that my wife said was like she, you know, it was almost as if I was deployed during my final year writing my dissertation. I ended up writing my dissertation with uh, one of the field's most renowned scholars on terrorism, and her name is Martha Crenshaw. And I wrote my dissertation on the effects of what happens. uh, I call it leadership decapitation, but I'm not talking about, you know, cutting off heads. I'm talking about 
when you remove, when you kill or capture the leader of a terrorist group, what happens to the longevity of that terrorist group? Does it, do they last longer than they normally would? Do they implode quicker? And there was a debate in the counterterrorism field about, um, when you, when you take out the leader, is it going to, uh, end up in results that you don't want? Meaning maybe the group becomes more violent and more, more lethal and more frequent. And so I dove into that for 18 months. Um, and I was able to produce the dissertation and graduate in three years and, uh, just recently in 2019, uh, that dissertation got published by Columbia University Press in a book called, uh, Targeting Top Terrorists. So, um, for those of you that are nerdy counter-terrorist folks that are interested, um, you can go take a look at that book. Wow. Can they go onto Amazon or is it someone else they would find that book, Brian? Uh, brother Greg, I will give you a copy. Uh, don't even bother going on Amazon. So, uh, I, I, I warn you though, it's, it's academic, so it might put you to sleep, but it's, uh, you know, I do, um, prescribe it for people that have insomnia and those sorts of things. <laughs> oh, I'm sure it's very, very captivating and very enlightening. No doubt about that. Now, after you receive this great doctorate, you're invited back to West Point to run the combating terrorism center, if I'm saying that right. What's this all about, please, Brian? You are. So in uh, preparation for tonight, I wore my Combating Terrorism Center shirt for you. Um, really, really unique outfit. Um, it is based out of the Department of Social Sciences at West Point. So it's based out of an academic department. But the unique thing is, is that it has, uh, at the time, we had 15 people working there, and I was the only uniformed person, which meant that, the other 14 were all civilian, uh, Department of the Army civilians who were researchers. Some had master's degrees, others had PhDs. And so we, we did essentially three kind of core functions. One was we taught the academy's largest academic minor in counterterrorism. Uh, number two is we produced original research on, on counterterrorism. And many of uh, our pieces of research were based off of uh, documents, original documents that had been seized on the battlefield on terrorist groups, declassified, given to us, and then we would produce some cool research on there. So, for example, uh, if you've ever, if you heard about the, the Bin Laden raid when we, uh, went after Bin Laden sure. in Abbottabad, uh, what happened there was, if you've ever seen the movie, we took a lot of documents from that compound out with us. Although the first ever documents to get released to the public were released through the Combating Terrorism Center. And then the third component that we did was briefing the nation's senior leaders on our counterterrorism research. And the interesting thing was because our outfit was not funded by the Army, we were actually funded by donations, we had a lot of academic um, uh, runway, academic freedom, to write and say how we felt, you know, like what our analysis was, which made it very attractive to senior leaders to come listen to us because they were getting the unvarnished version of of the truth. And so, you know, during my time at CTC, I think I counted something like 70 different, you know, general officers uh, had an opportunity to meet the president, to brief the Secretary of Defense, two different CIA directors, wow. um, uh, every single four-star general that you can probably think of, including <laughs> our current Secretary of Defense, General Austin, uh, 
so yeah, it was a, a, a fantastic experience. Now, as part of this all, if we proceed correctly, you actually testified before Congress as well. I did. Um, what's interesting now that this is the 20th anniversary is that that was five years ago. So at the time, Congress was doing a session in front of the House Armed Services Committee, which is their largest committee, uh, based off of the lessons learned of 15 years of fighting terrorism. And so uh, I was asked to testify. The interesting part was uh, the Army did not want me to testify. And so when they told Congress that, Congress came back and said, well, we will subpoena Lieutenant Colonel Price if you don't allow him to come. And oh, so what's no. interesting is if you ever see a picture of me in that testimony, I'm in a suit. I'm not yeah. in my uniform, although my placard still says Lieutenant Colonel Price. And so the Army said he can testify, but he's going to testify as my Ph.D., not as Lieutenant Colonel. But oh, it was the wow. road of the Congress, it, they had already made the placard, and they don't go back on that. So <laughs> that, that was a, uh, a a fascinating experience, and uh, it was interesting just taking a look at some of my remarks back then and comparing them to like what I would say now. I think it stands up uh, pretty good. Oh, I'm sure they do, uh, no doubt about it. Now, it comes to 2018, you retire from the Army to become the founding executive director of the Buccino Leadership Institute right here at wonderful Seton Hall. Share with us, please, about the Institute and your key role there, Brian. Yeah, so I, towards the, you know, tail end of my military career, I will say it got a little depressing every day focusing on targeting the worst of our humankind, right? And so it was such a fascinating, fun shift to go from focusing on bad leadership to developing the next generation of leadership. And at the time, um, and, you know, all kudos go to, you know, the, the previous provost, uh, Dr. Karen Boroff and, and, and President Meehan, who had this vision to take a very highly successful leadership program that had existed back to the 1990s, uh, the Bucino Center out of the Stillman uh, School of Business and expand that university wide in order to give other students all across the university the opportunity for really quality four years of leadership development. And so it's been a wild ride. Um, I, as I joke, I'm starting my senior year at, at Seton Hall <laughs> and uh, just really, you know, it's such a wild experiment, but something that is so rewarding. And we're just getting started. So uh, it's, it's a lot of fun. I understand, as you say, you're just getting started. But I also understand you've received many awards and much, much uh, uh, great press. And uh, certainly many of the colleges and universities are very interested in uh, this is a best in class role model for the rest of the world. So uh, so kudos to you for this. And it's funny you mentioned Karen Borhoff and um, uh, Mary Meehan. Mary was a significant guest a couple of years ago on the show, and Karen actually was the faculty member who sponsored Thank God for Monday. We are on the air 15 years now because of her. Wow. So we both owe her uh, uh, our jobs, essentially. You got that right. So I have to ask you this question, Brian. We've just got a couple of more minutes, but I can't let you go without asking this. If I say to you, great leader, who comes to mind and why? 
Wow. Um, so it, it, we all have our different versions of, you know, who impacts us the most, whether that comes from religion or sports or closer to home in terms of, of your family. Sure. Um, but to me, the, the best leaders that I've always been attracted to are have been servant leaders. And what's really interesting is one of the first things that we do with all of our leadership students on their very first day in the Institute is we ask them to define leadership. I say, don't pull out your phones, don't go on your computer, don't Google it. Just write down in your own words what leadership is. And then I take all of those definitions and I put it into a word cloud. And for the last three years in a row, the one word that appears more than any other is the word others. And I just think that's such a fantastic, A, it's a testament to this generation for those that want to say, you know, this generation is an entitled generation and they don't, they don't get it. I'll tell you, you know, and I, again, I'm fortunate enough to work with some fantastic students at Seton Hall. Now, in addition to all this great work in the Army and all you're doing at Seton Hall, you have founded an organization called Top Mental Game. Share with us a little bit about this great organization, please. Yeah, it's funny because I, I incorporate a lot of the same things that I do in that in my business with the students at Seton Hall. And then I take the same leadership principles that we teach at Seton Hall for the, the, my clients in, in Top Metal Game. Uh, basically, what it is is I help athletes and business leaders perform under pressure when it matters the most. And so um, as opposed to focusing on the physical components of the game or, you know, how well you understand your profit and loss as a business leader, I focus on sometimes those self-imposed limitations that hold us back from being our, our best, our best selves, or the best versions of ourselves. We saved probably the most important question for last, this being September 11, 2001, uh, 20th anniversary observance. How do you recommend our loyal listeners spend September 11, 2021? So there's going to be some fantastic things on, on TV. But to me, I would probably ask the listeners to do the same thing that I ask our students to do when they go there, which is to self-reflect. And, you know, one of the it's what's interesting right now in our uh, toxic political culture, where when you go back to September 12th back then, you know, you started the show off talking about hope, healing and peace. And to me, that's when, you know, it didn't matter what your race or ethnicity or who you voted for in the last election mattered. It didn't matter on, you know, on flight 11. Uh, it didn't matter on, you know, if what, what tower you were in or what firehouse you were coming from. And to me, if there's one positive thing that kind of came from that period was a sense of, of unity. And, uh, and I hope that we can kind of self-reflect and remember that, you know, uh, two things. You know, one, we're all Americans in this. And, you know, I think we all want the best for our, for our kids. Um, and two, the other thing I would say, just looking at the news with Afghanistan, you talked about, you know, the people of Afghanistan. It's a small world. And, uh, and there's people that are in other places. And I've been to Iraq and Afghanistan and, and all across the, you know, I've lived in other countries. Uh, we're all human, you know. And uh, to me, it's that self-reflection, tapping back into what's truly important, not what's on, you know, 
Fox or CNN or any of that stuff, like tapping into what's truly important and what difference can you make in somebody else's life. And that's what we're trying to do with our students uh, that are in the Bucino Leadership Institute. That's what I would recommend to to listeners of Thank God It's Monday. Oh, beautiful advice. And I know I'm going to spend part of the day, if not most of the day, doing some self-reflection that I need to do. No question about that. Lieutenant Colonel Retired Brian C. Price, Ph.D., the founding director, uh, founding executive director of the Buccino Leadership Institute. We can't thank you enough for your great service to our wonderful country. Thank you for your great service to Seton Hall. Thank you. And for taking time out of your very busy schedule to be with us this week on Thank God for Monday. Yes, you've enlightened us. You've really inspired us to really look inside ourselves and see how we can make ourselves the best leaders we can be, how we can make ourselves the best selves we can be, and how we can really continue to serve others. Uh, Seton Hall, the Catholic University of New Jersey, not surprised this fabulous, fabulous Buccino Leadership Institute is a big part of Seton Hall University. So thanks so much. And, of course, Hazards Ed Forward, you are an incredible role model of Hazards Ed Forward, advanced despite difficulty. So we wish you continued joy and success and great continued contribution in all this fabulous work you're doing. Thanks, Greg, and uh, really appreciate the support. And, uh, yeah, uh, uh, thanks for the opportunity for me to engage with your audience. I really appreciate it. Uh, We're the ones honored today, that's for sure. Listeners, sadly, once again, we're out of time. Greg saying our hope and prayer is that when you wake up on Monday morning, just like Brian does, you'll say, thank God for Monday.